A Podcast One production. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Richard Glover is a best-selling author of 13 books, journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald and Washington Post, and presenter of one of Australia's most loved radio shows, the Drive programme on 702 ABC Sydney. Your film, I am really thrilled that you chose it because I had never heard of it before. Okay. So in your honour, mm. I watched it. All right. And it's weird, holy moly. It's weird. Go, Kate, this is sensational. It's a 20-year-old sleeping with an 80-year-old. Yeah. The music's by Cat Stevens. Yeah. I mean, why have I not heard of this film? Yeah. So, so would you mind telling me your story behind Harold and Maud? Well, I just, you know, I remember seeing it about six times over. So, and I don't know why, really, because looking at it now, it's just weird. It's really it's very radical weird. for seventy-one. And um, and then when I met my partner, my life partner, when I was when I was about twenty-one, it turned out she'd seen it like ten times. So the reason I the reason I nominate it as one of my five is not because I think it's the greatest film ever, not because I'm particularly uh, encouraging people to watch it now. In fact, I don't quite know what I would think if I watched it now. Just that I think it showed the hunger of the times right. for something different. So I I grew up, um, you know, in Sydney and in, in Canberra. I go to this um, private school in Canberra as an adolescent and not that it was particularly bad or anything like that, but masculinity at the time in the 70s felt like a straitjacket rather than a smorgasbord. It involved attitudes to women I didn't have, attitudes to sport I certainly didn't have, attitudes um, attitudes to alcohol that I've spent the years since working on. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I, it, it just seemed a very constrained a constrained life, I suppose, and, and, and quite opposite to, you know, life is not perfect at, at all now, but I do think our young men in particular just have a wider choice of how to be themselves than, than we did. And I think that's what drove you. To, you went to the cinema and you saw this deeply odd film which was about a young man who, tried to, who, who kept on staging these sort of mock suicides in front of his rich mother and then had this relationship with this very sort of geriatric woman who turned out, well, I won't give away the ending, but, you know, it's... it's well, what a great performance by her. Yeah, Ruth Gordon. Yeah. Um, yeah, great actor. And so, so, so I was watching that. And, and, and I, what did you make of it now? Uh, so, very weird. And, and thinking, if I was watching this in 1971, I'm watching it in 2018 thinking, this is sort of ahead of its time. And you go, hold on, it was done 40 years ago. But what I actually thought, and this is not a line, this is true, is I just finished your book, The Land Before Avocados, talking about uh, how Australia was. So it's really interesting to hear your explanation of why it might have resonated with yeah, you. Yeah, the hunger. The hunger for something that was not constrained. Or, or, or can I, I mean, sort of blancmange, a bit, a bit, you know, a bit yeah. sort of vanilla. You go, and it, was in, it was incredibly bland monoculture. I mean, the book is quite, I think it's quite patriotic in a way because I don't think there's any country which has gone 
from there in 1961 or something yeah. to here has travelled such a distance in such a short period of time from the most bland monoculture, ethnically, ethnically uh, uh, homogenous, economically protected, really difficult for anyone who is different in any way, you know, the list goes on. But very few places have gone from such an extreme example of that yes. to such a really great, and this is not, we are not a perfect society, but to such a place, you know, 43% of the people in Sydney speak a language other than English yeah. at home, 43%, 40%, 40 were born somewhere else other than Australia. So, and that's one measure, but there's a million other measures of the fact that it's, while it's not a perfect society, it's a very different society to the one of my childhood. Sure. Do you know, re reading, the, it's, it's, it's The Land Before Avocado is the correct title, isn't it? The Land yeah. Before Avocado. It, it is one of the stories that really resonated. Uh, I think this is in like the first chapter because it happened to my mum. And, and, and we laugh about it at the kitchen table. And, and it's, it's interesting hearing you write about millennials thinking you're making it up. Yeah, right? yeah. You go, no, my mother, Margaret, who is alive and will listen to this, got married to John, my dad... And was therefore fired. Yeah. When she right. got engaged. When that's she announced right. her, it's congratulations, Margaret. Here's you're a tea fired. party and you're fired. No one bats an eyelid and life continues. That's right. Well the book uh, is the book is full of, you know, the book plays the game of let's shock a millennial quite a lot, really, <laughs> which is all these things where if you tell if you tell any young person, they'll just say, No, that cannot be it true. It can't be true. So yeah. there's a million examples in the book. Uh, the one you cite is the marriage bar. So until 1966, you get, in any Commonwealth government job, you get sacked the instant you get married because <laughs> they don't want to take you away from your house. It's like a multi-python sketch, but it's and true. So, so the public service is full of women who are hiding their wedding rings or hiding their yeah. married name or, or hiding a pregnant belly under a billowy blouse yeah. in order to try to eke out another few weeks of employment and thus yeah. pay before the inevitable happens. And, and talking about pay. The bank. I said to Kate, it should be reinstated. Where if she went yeah. to the bank and said, "I don't, know, I want a loan," or yeah. I'm like, we go, husband's go, permission. Could, could uh, I? Could you get your husband? There, in, there are some things from the past that should be brought back. Certainly, <laughs> no women couldn't really have credit. Single women had credit cards. Obviously, credit cards come in. Bank card comes in in the late seventies. Before then, there are store cards. So you might have a David Jones card or something like that. Um, uh, and then, but then once you get married, you have to give it up. Amazing. In order and get another one with your husband's permission. Until 1984, this is a good one to shock a millennial. <laughs> Until 1984, married women need their husband's written permission before leaving the country. Until 1984, it's amazing because they need to. You need to get your husband's signature before you get a passport. And, and, Until and you, you are right. It's, it's, I've got twin daughters who are 18, and they, they think, Dad, you're making it up. That, yeah. that, that, that just cannot, that cannot be or, true. Or it's from the 17th century. Not, yeah. not it's from... See, one, one of the, as there are some things in the book where when I tell older people, they say, of course, Richard, don't be a moron. Everyone knows that. It's not even worth putting in the book. <laughs> At the same time, the same fact, a yes. younger person will say, that cannot be true. You're lying. Yeah. So, for instance, in the pages of the Australian Woman's Weekly and everywhere else... Right through the early seventies, not Ford pills. Well, there I are love no, no. Ford I'll tell you pills. about. I'll tell are you, you fat? I'll you tell heifer. you about Ford pills. But yeah, um, I was just saying about the the married names. Actually, that no married woman is called by her first name really ever. So even someone famous, you couldn't work out what their first name was. Even someone famous like Sonia McMahon, wife of the Prime Minister, great socialite of the time, is always described as 
Mrs. William McMahon, and yep. she's photographed with Mrs. Bill Carruthers and Mrs. Bert Smith. You know, yeah. it's a very gender fluid country. I can tell you, all the women have got men's names. Um, and and uh, again, I say that to people my age, and they say, "Well, mate, everyone knows that." In fact, my mother still gets yeah, letters I, yeah. from certain people addressed to Mrs. Phil Smith, Mrs. Nigel Marsh. I opened yeah. one of my wife's letters because I I thought yeah. they they made a mistake. They put an S on the Mister. Yeah. Because why? I mean, there yeah, isn't yeah, a Mrs. Nigel yeah. Marsh. I mean, yeah. But apparently, there is. I'm married to her. <laughs> Apparently there is. So that surprises people. You mentioned Ford Pills. Yeah, there's lots of – it's funny because, you know, it's a travel book really about yeah. about this period, about the 60s and 70s. So I try to dive in and swim around in the period. You can do that really effectively with something like The Woman's Weekly. Um, and there's some surprises along the way. The articles are really quite intellectual yeah. actually. There's a great article about this rising – um, British politician called Margaret Thatcher. What will happen to her? Yes, you know, yeah. there's a really good piece on a, a young actress called Jackie Weaver and uh, all that. But from, and so the the articles are pretty good actually. But there's this sadness that seeps from the advertising, yeah. and the advertising is for the divorce agency, which of course you need the private mm. investigator to get divorced. Yeah. You need to prove divorce. Um, the 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 diet constant diet pills. Body Bex, shaming was was Be- a, yeah, next level. Bex and next Vi- level. Bex and Vincent tablets, so yeah. that you know people are drugging themselves constantly. Yeah, the Ford pill ad is is fun. So, to make yourself Ford pills will make you as attractive as the women your husband stares at in the street. Yeah, and then the yeah. Bo- the body the body copy says. Um, have you looked at your husband lately? Not as your husband, but as a man. <laughs> have you looked at yourself? Not as his wife, but as his secretary. <laughs> Don't be afraid of what you see. Start fighting. Take some Ford pills today. You know what they are, don't you? They're, they're, they're laxatives. They're laxatives. Unbelievable. So you, you may well get your husband's back, but make sure you're close to a toilet when you do. <laughs> well, listen, so, so I, I'm going to, talking of books, um, I'm going to move you on to Bill Bryson's Notes from a Small Country, which I, uh, so I hadn't seen Harold and Maud, but I had read that book and I loved it. And the thing that I remember from that book um, uh, that just sticks in my mind is his wonderful description of the finger wave. If you're in England and you're driving and you pass mm-hmm. someone, mm-hmm. And, and other cultures wouldn't even notice it, but they just lift. Oh the no, thing. we do that. I love we do that. that. We and do that, that in the outside the cities. Yeah, <laughs> that's that little 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 truck drivers. Yeah, but um, look, I think I came across him really early um, when he first started writing. I remember reading the first piece he had in Granta, right? You know, the literary magazine, and it was that it was a, a chapter from what turned out to be his, his first book, which even hadn't which hadn't come out by then. And I, I still got a a memory of, I know exactly where I was. You know, I was sitting in this bedroom and I can picture the bedroom and I was reading the ground and I thought, my God, this is so funny. Um, it was the one about him growing up in in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. Oh, the 50s, the, brilliant. The first, the first line is, I was born in Des Moines, Iowa. Someone has to be, yeah. you know. Um, I think, uh, look, they're all great. Um, I think what he really teaches anyone who's interested in comedy writing is that, um, first of all, you can be nice and you can be naughty. You can do both. You don't have to choose an entirely dark palette or an entirely bright palette. Um, so obviously there's people like David Sedaris where the palette is quite dark and there's other people where the um, – I mean, I talk a bit in this book about Ross Campbell, who was a great columnist in the 60s in Australia. The palette is very light. You can do both. So I love the way Bryson in Notes from a Small Country, he's in love with England. So he's an American who's living in England for the first time. He's kind of touring around. He loves the place. In fact, he ends up living there. He loves it so much. But there's also just these really great moments where he's so naughty. 
So uh, one, one, one example almost at random, he's travelling in a train and there's one of those great train bores next to him, uh, you know, which Britain produces better than anybody else in the world. And this guy's talking about the wheels being, you know, from this particular decade and they were obviously produced in Sheffield and you can tell from the way the seats are that the level, leather was this brand and that produced there. And, uh, and and Bryson's saying, oh, I just wanted this guy to stop. And I think I'm here, I'm here to Cardiff. Oh, God, what's going to happen? And then the mood in the piece changes because he says the guy then tells him, the guy then admits that his wife only died a year before. And, the, the you know, the, the whole tone of the piece shifts and then Bryson says, suicide, I presume. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so naughty. And so, you know, a lot of comedy writing, I think, is playing with the reader's expectations. So a lot of it is is, is like a f- little fishing expedition. You you draw somebody in, you point their attention in one direction, and then, you know, you, you shift tone. Which is, and he's recently gone back to England for a new book, uh, and he's gone round again. Um, and and uh, there's this great, pa- very similar passage in a way where he's on a path, a walking path, and there's this rather posh local who's got a dog who does a poo on the walking path. And Bryson says, oh, and she doesn't pick it up, and he says, well, come on, uh, you know, you've got... And so she, in a very sort of aristocratic way, she sort of pushes a few leaves over it, Bryson says, thus turning it into a land, you know, a land, <laughs> a landmine. Um, and, then, and then the next paragraph of the book is... Naturally, I was horrified by her doing that, but I had my walking cane with me, so I clubbed her over the head and then pushed her lifeless body into the <laughs> ditch next to her. <laughs> and then he goes on. You see, if I was writing that, I'd be cowardly, and I'd, do, I'd maybe have the bravery to do that yes. sort of fabulous flourish, but then I'd say, on my next paragraph, it's uh, only kidding. Only joking, or, yeah, or only sure. joking, of course. Uh, and, but his next paragraph says, I walked on to Bristol. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, something else he does, it, it, it's fascinating hearing you talk about him because I, I, I just think he's a legend, it is not only can he do it in the same book or the same chapter or the same paragraph, is throughout his, his oeuvre, can I use that mm-hmm. pretentious word, it is he writes books about, you know, travelling around England or Australia and getting drunk in Alice Springs, but he also writes books on Shakespeare yeah. and science and the history of the world, and they're equally funny. That's right. How, how I've read a book on Shakespeare and laughed my head off, and I know now a little bit more about Shakespeare than I ever thought I would. Well, well that's right, and I, th- I think he knows like any good conversation, like a good dinner party, a good dinner party can have serious bits in it, and it can have uproarious bits in it, and can have silliness, and it can... I mean, I hope that's what I've, I've really try- tried to do with this book, that I think some, some readers might say, look... This book does not make sense. It's got too much variety of tone. Some of it is actually quite um, distressing when when I talk about mm. homophobia in the 60s or 70s, something like that, you know, um, talk about the way Aboriginal people were, were, were treated. It actually makes you cry. Yeah. And then there's other parts which are totally silly and stupid about, you know, the food and the fashion. I think that's all right. I think that's what, a, as I say, a good dinner party conversation is like. But other people say that's... Inconsistency of tone. Hey, we like inconsistency. Now, I'm going to move you on to uh, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley. It was one of his comeback classics. Um, what a fabulous lyric. Mm. I, I'm not really a Presley chap, but in your honour, I, I listened Thank to you. it ten times. It's good, uh, isn't it? Uh, well, reading it, it's like a good poem. Mm. You know, Listening to it, mm. he, he nails it. Um, but tell me your story behind uh, In the Ghetto. Well, partly I think it's important to say to the world that any genuine Elvis fan 
likes it all. There's this terrible thing that we all put, we Elvis fans put up with, which is people saying, oh, yes, he's fine. I really like the sun sessions. Oh, give me a break. <laughs> you know, they only like the first, the very first record or if they're really pressed up until about when he joins the army, you know. So, that, or, or pre-white jumpsuit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and actually actually, the jumpsuit is some of the great material. Yeah. I mean, I, and, 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 and the career is really interesting all the way through and the sun sessions is fantastic, but also some of the sort of power ballads yeah. So that's the first thing to say. And, and people, there's a whole theory that that uh, the wankers have, which is that Colonel Tom Parker ruined Elvis. And really, that's not a good reading of it, I don't think. I, I think he wanted all of this. And it's in, these all these songs are an expression of different, different parts of Presley and, and the changing times of Presley. I think the other, the other reason I chose Presley, he's very important to me in the way that I think, you know, my, my, my other book that's, that, that came out before Flesh uh, Wounds, of Flesh Wounds mm. is really about um, having inadequate parents and how you rebuild yourself after that. And it's a kind of quite defiant book that uses comedy again to beat reality with a stick and insist that you can move on from inadequate parenting. And I think in practice, um, one of the ways I moved on from inadequate parenting is just to invest a lot in a hero. So you project... What you, you, yeah. you sort of create a father figure for sure. you or a mother figure. And I'm sure that a lot of, you know, a lot of kids do that so that it might be a sporting hero, it might be a ballet star, it might be, it might be anything. But a lot, of what, a lot of what that is doing is kind of finding the love elsewhere in your life, that if mm. you lack it in one place, you kind of find it and you in, in, invest in people. Maybe, maybe you invest absurd amounts in people. Sure. So when I was 12, I invested, a, you know, I was a... I was a card-carrying member of the fan club oh, at good 12, which was inappropriate to And, the and did he let you down or did he deliver? He delivered. He did. In fact, I let him down. Right. Because th- this was all right out of kilter. I mean, people people weren't really liking Elvis anymore. Not my age. My age was sort of Bowie and all that, but I was still into Elvis. And uh, I had the membership card and I used to go to school dances and try to attract 15-year-old women, by 15-year-old girls, by showing them my membership card. Elvis Presley fan club, Todd Slaughter, club president. It was an English club. Australians right. joined the English club. Yeah. Manchester. Was the, was the bar for entry high, Richard? It was not high. It was the payment of, <laughs> payment of two pounds in English money or something. <laughs> you didn't have to pass an exam uh, of coolness or anything. No, no. no. But as I say, I let him down, really, because I, I, I've loved him. I still love him. And I only momentarily got distracted from my love between when I was about maybe 18 and 21, and it was during that time that he died. Right. It was because I didn't pay attention. It's interesting I, hearing... I let him down, not him, me. Do, do you think you are damaged by your uh, upbringing? Look, I think that... Uh, well, the book's really a defiant thing, a defiant thing about how you're not damaged. But, yeah, I suppose I, I, I suppose I am damaged. But I think uh, the other thing about the book, I suppose, is that it's really about how a vast number of people have troubled childhoods. Maybe not everybody... Uh, well, some, one of the questions I ask when I talk about it publicly is I say to people, who, who here felt that they had the, par- had the love from their parents that they want to give a child of their own? That's a quite challenging sure. question to think about. And I'm not saying everyone says no. In fact, I think about 60% of people say, yeah, I did. You know, I kind of, they're not perfect, but yeah, I kind of did. But that means that 40% didn't. Yeah. And, you know, we have a whole language of parenting as if it's in- inexorable we even talk about animals, you know, a, car, a cow and a calf and, you know, as if this is built into the very thrum of our DNA that mothers always love their, children, yeah. their fathers always. And, th- and 
and once you and if you have that rhetoric, the trouble with that rhetoric is then if you miss out on that, you end up feeling terribly aggrieved, as if you're the only person like that, and as if you've got a right to have an unsuccessful life because of it. And you turn that around and think, well, actually, a lot of people don't have it, and yet we're not all drug addicts and robbing service stations. And it's because of this great human resilience, and we manage to find the love elsewhere. We find it in a partner or a child or a, a, a work culture we like or a brother or a sister or, or, in, a, or in a white pants suit. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the English comedian Jimmy Carr, yeah. who, who um, he gave a really moving interview uh, well, not with his tax accountant. <laughs> well, he's he is surprisingly well when he's not on stage being him. He's surprisingly thoughtful, uh, and he said something that that really stuck with me, which is you get to choose your own narrative. Hmm. So, so he could. I mean, he had his own hard luck story. So he could say, oh, my narrative could be boo hoo hoo. My parents mm-hmm. never loved me. I'm dyslexic. Blah blah blah. Or my narrative could be: I went to Cambridge and I'm a successful comedian. You, you get to choose. Yeah, what to some to some extent. Yeah. I think you know. Obviously, in some cases, the the damage is so extreme that yes. you know. And, and certainly, I'm not saying everybody can overcome this thing, but it is amazing to see how many people do. And certainly, you know, one of the things I really object to in the book is that idea that if you've had inadequate parenting, you cannot go on to be a good parent this is yourself. It. And especially and, with, and I really object to so, that. So, but, but back to your 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 most recent book, the Avocado one, it, it is. I love promoting the notion, at the same time as not saying some people have got awful circumstances that they can't get over, but we should also be celebrating the fact, which I, which I personally, mm. without wanting to blow smoke up your ass, it's an amazing, uplifting story where people, you can choose mm. not to be a victim. You go, you don't let your past define you. It's an important part of your makeup, but it's, it's like sort of um, realism about the past, but excitement about the future. Mm. Not boo hoo hoo. I'm I'm condemned. I was sent to boarding school at the age of five in another country. You know, Crimea River. Yes, yeah. Isn't that awful? Well, get over it, Nigel. You're 54. Uh, you know, so what? There's probably some good things about it as mm. well as some crap things about That's it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And and um, and it makes you what you are, doesn't it? And and there's pleasure in that. I think both books have got that similarity. One's a more per- flesh wounds is more personal. Book and and this is more about us as a country, really. And as a country, we've said, let's get real and let's do things and let's change. And we, you know, it's important to take pride in that. I think that there's something almost demeaning to ourselves, to those who you weren't here for the whole period, but for those who are apologies. for those of us who actually have lived here all through that period, we've been part of the change that had to happen, and we should take pride in that. And we should also. And, and it, acknowledging it is also a way of acknowledging all those important people along the way who helped make it happen, the Ann Summers or the brave men and women of the of, of the gay liberation movement of, of the time or, 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 you know, the Charlie Perkins or, or the Gough Whitlams, all these people who helped make it happen. You only really measure their achievement if you really sit with what it was like, not through rose-coloured glasses. I mean, there's, of course, there's pleasure in this book, I hope, of some of the nostalgic things you come across, but not looked at through rose-coloured glasses, looked at for real. This is The Five of My Life with Richard Glover. More in a moment. This is The Five of My Life with Nigel Marsh. Now, your place, um, and and I apologise because I... 
trying to read everything I could about you and and by you, but but I I didn't get to read the actual book, but I read about it. Oh, is, right. I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm, that's it. <laughs> it was rubbish, mate. Now it is um the Mud House, which which I uh, it's going to be next because I'm really intrigued by the story. And Philip Clark is your mate, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So Philip Clark, who does a, who does nightlife on ABC, hasn't? Can I just say, hasn't he got? the most come-to-bed voice of anyone on radio, including yourself. By which you mean he sends you to sleep. Well, I'm, <laughs> no. you know, I'm pleased to know that. Philip, he's, I he, mean, he, you he, are... He's, <laughs> he's got Kavorka in his voice. He, he's got a lovely... Yeah, um, no, he's, he's, he's great on radio. He's also, you know, my, my sort of best buddy, and we met at university a long time ago, and in the very early years of, of university, somebody said to somebody, you know, oh, we should buy a block of land and build a place, and I don't know why that was said, and I think... I think actually often that is often said actually among Australians and no- normally the moment passes. Yeah. And there was this particularly boozy night I remember in Canberra where um, in Canberra at the time you could buy port by the 44-litre bladder right. from wineries outside town and you'd bottle it yourself. And Phil had bought one of these bladders and he was bottling this. And, and this particular night was the only time in my life I've ever been served port in a schooner glass. <laughs> With a head, <laughs> and maybe that was maybe that was the reason that by the end of this night we were all we, we got out the newspaper, we were starting circling yeah. ads, and we bought this. In the end, we bought a block of land up near Wombian Caves, which is sort of Mitagongi, Golden Mitagong, yeah. Taralga. How did you afford of, it? Was, was it just? Like, it was really cheap. It was twenty six thousand dollars. Right. Okay. So that, it was between know, two of you, between cool. two fans, well, four of us really, two, two us two and our, our, our two girlfriends, and it was this. It, it was just the right amount of money that you could put. You could max out your bank yeah. card and every coin underneath the, you know, the back seat of the car, and we bought it. And part of the reason I think we made we made my brick house on it was that by that time we we then had no funds, and yet you're keen to do something. Sure. So, the one thing you can do, which is entirely free, is make mud bricks. You just push up some dirt and you get some molds and you start making them. And that's what we did. And we made something like six thousand mud bricks and we built this mud brick house and the book that book is the story really of of this of this kind of physical manifestation i think of our friendship and then of course the kids came along um so yeah it's the physical manifest i see the house as the physical manifestation of, of phil and him kind of if this doesn't sound too pretentious him kind of teaching me this useful way to be a man i talked before about the straight jacket Mm. Of, of masculinity when I was growing up. But there is a way of being, there is a useful way of being a man, I think, uh, and, and not an aggressive man, not a, a, a negative image of masculinity, but a kind of good, useful building uh, image of masculinity where I could feel, I could feel happy with myself as, as, a, as an Australian man. And I think the house is a manifestation of that process and, you know, my two great sons coming along and helping with the process and, and you know, our two, our two wives, you know, and, and they're kind of gung-ho at it. And, and when well. you mentioned your girlfriend, I hope this is not putting my foot in it. What, what was the That's girl? Deborah, yeah. It, it is. So, it, it, yeah. So, so she's been for there for the whole journey she's as well. She's been there for the whole journey. Fantastic. Yeah. So and we the, met when we were um, when she was twenty and I was twenty one at, at ANU. I I I was um, I was always interested in, in the theatre, and I walked past the ANU um, you know drama theatre, and some student was putting on an amateur production of Joe Wharton's What the Butler Saw, which I play I adore. Right. So I. I Went in, I opened the door and went in. So childhood and, sweethearts. And, 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 I, and I offered to paint her sets. <laughs> That's not <laughs> a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that there's something, uh, well, it's interesting, in, in, in 
all the stuff I read about you, mate, is quite inspirational and uplifting message in confronting a fear. And I don't mean a fear like a lion or something, but something you can't do. So it could be learning to draw Mm -hmm. or it could be learning to make a house where it's actually amazingly satisfying and enriching where if you go, I understand I can't do this, but I'm going to own the fact that I can't and take the time to learn mm. and, and, and mm. not, go for, not go for perfection, but go for progress. Yep. You go, do you know what? You, you, bloody hell, you, inner city radio host, have built a house. That's yeah. bloody impressive. Yeah, and from, a, from a, a, the standing start of a person didn't, yeah, couldn't, lift, couldn't lift a hammer, really. But, but, well, but I think there's a lesson in that, which is yeah. if you can learn that... Think of all the other stuff that that other people can learn. It might not be house. It might be mm. you know. I want to learn Chinese. It's too daunting. It, well, no, it's, it's all not. it's all muscle memory, isn't it? I, I think that is one of the lessons of of, build, of building a house. Actually, is that I, I really knew nothing. Phil knew a bit actually, but I really knew nothing. And you you kind of understand if you take things slowly and you, you okay footings. How do you do footings? Okay, let's ask somebody. Let's re- read a book about it. Let's okay, you do them this way. How do you set a string line? Okay, you do it, and you could actually you can actually do all. You don't you, you don't do them as well as a tradesperson. Of course you don't. No. And you take five times the time. That, and sometimes you have to do them three times. We had a great saying in this thing. We'd we'd do these jobs and we'd look back, and it'd be you know entirely shit house. Yeah. And we'd say, oh well, it's not meant to be the. The floor of the sister. We'd say the floor of the sister chapel. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if I if I drove down the road and when you first see it, is it hilariously rubbish? Does it look like a house about to fall down? No, it, no, it no. It looks great. It's two story, and, right. and and since then we've built another. Oh, oh, you're showing off now. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, the part of the problem was my my son, who my younger son, who was kind of fifteen at this stage. We'd finished the house, the first house, when he was about twelve, and he kind of came to came to both of us with this complaint, which is that. You know, his older brother had had a chance to be part of this and oh. he kind of didn't and really this seemed to be terribly unfair and, well, mm, couldn't we build another oh, one? Oh, I want to build a house with Daddy. Yeah. That's so and, sweet. And, uh, and, and, and I sort of looked at Phil and Phil looked at me. And another one. And there was a back's aching, <laughs> credit cards maxed out, yeah. entirely, you know, finally able to sit on this veranda and drink a beer. And Phil said, you know what, of course we should. And it was really Phil who said, yeah, if the boy wants to do it, we will do it. And we did it. And, and you know, the, the sort of most moving thing of all really was, was you know, once, once we got a bit of it up, to see, I can still, I've still got a really stark memory of this particular day when I was standing on the ground because I'm scared of heights and Phil and my young son Joe, who was, you know, probably 16 or something, 17, were in the superstructure of the house, you know, the roof structure, but without tin so you could see them and they were kind of picked out against the horizon. And I could see Phil teaching Joe, you know, how to use tools, how to use electric saws and things just like he taught me all those years before. And he was kind of, he was kind of teaching my boy yeah. to be a man, you know. It was so, 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 so the, the, the joy, so it was heartbreak. A shared is, endeavor yeah. towards a common goal it is. It's an amazing. It's a bit like if you play competitive sport, which I don't do anymore. But you're just doing stuff. Rather, mm. it's, it's, it's like uh, some of my problems with lovely dinner parties that I'm sure we all go to is you just sit around talking crap. It's more enlightening mm. and fun to do something and talk crap. I love those moments when you're building, when you don't say anything, actually. Right. And, and you know, you're, you know, I don't know, something like putting up the, 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 the big rafters in the ceiling and a lot of it's wordless and you're kind of looking at each other and you're adjusting and I can see what he's doing and he can see. And actually you can be wordless for 
for half an hour and yet you're kind of really f- closely working together. It's tuned. Yeah. Wonderful. It's, it is a good thing. It is a good thing. Now, your possession, mate, uh, again, which I, I'm loving uh, hearing people, probably of all the five choices, I, I like getting to this bit the most because they, they're yet to have something that is worth a lot. Mm. It's, it's always stuff. Well, these were that, that, quite that, pretty pricey. Oh, I were they? Can I bring it into? Here, here we go. Orthotic. Ah, this isn't because you're vain and you want a couple of extra inches of height. Uh, Glover has got orthotic boots because you've got a dodgy back. Is that right? No, I've got a dodgy foot, and which I suffered from for a long time. And I was thinking, I and mean, I would wake up every morning with aching legs after you know being asleep. And I was starting contemplating having one of those operations, which right. would cost ten thousand. Oh, which leg, left or right? Uh, this uh, left leg's the main right. problem, and um, I was going to have this heavy, expensive operation. And then um, because. Because I think we've got, because my wife's a playwright, we've got some friends who are in the theatre and one friend said to another friend about my, because <laughs> I was whinging about my leg, and someone said, go and see Jodie. And we actually already vaguely knew Jodie. And Jodie, Jodie is a, a boot maker who does the boots for showbiz musicals around the world. I mean, she's, she works from Sydney, but she's, she flies out to the West End and does the boots for, right. for um, you know, Priscilla or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Or the, kinky know, boots or something. Kinky boots or whatever the big show is. She does the shoes. And just occasionally, I think just, a, uh, you know, as an act of, of charity, she also does a few orthotics. Right. And so I went in there. This is a long time ago, but you will like this story, I think. I went in there a long time ago and um, she fitted me up and measured me up and all that sort of stuff. And then I had to come back a week week later. And by that time, she had a whiteboard on with all her current jobs. And at that time in Sydney, there was the um, the Pope was coming out and they were doing a, the Stations of the Cross mm-hmm. as a sort of thing. And she was doing the shoes for that. And so she had a whiteboard of current jobs. And the jobs were one, Jesus, two, Gough Whitlam because he had problems with it. Three, Richard Glover. Nice. And I think Goff and me and Jesus would all take pleasure in that. Goff might object to the order. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but this is lovely. So, so she actually sorted you out? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and what, what was it? Do you mind me asking? You've got one no, leg no, shorter I've, than the no, other? No, no, I've, I've got a kind of... A ba- <laughs> oh, now this is embarrassing. <laughs> I, talked on, about, okay, up, I talked fess about up. the straitjacket of masculinity right. during school years. I did my best to fight out of it. I took up ballet. Right. When I was about 14. And there was a loophole in the school sports register whereby they said boys could do outdoor, outside sports, outside the school's authority, if there was a sport the school didn't offer. And this was mainly, I think, to allow kids to go yachting on yeah. Lake Burley Griffin. Not to do ballet, you effeminate embarrassment. <laughs> Not to do ballet, you effeminate embarrassment. So anyway, I signed up to ballet, but I was really terrible at it. I still remember the ballet, the lady who was taking the class, you know, sort of me and 15 girls, total Billy Elliot, you know, and um, her saying, oh, Richard, would you mind um, seeing if you can go to gym and work on your arm muscles so you could at least lift any one of the girls a few inches off the floor <laughs> would be helpful. Um, but I think in the, in the course of doing that, at some point, I tried to do a sort of plie or I can't even remember the terms now. So it was an, it was an injury. It's, it's not, about, you, it's an, you know how people talk about an old war injury? Yeah. It's an old ballet injury. It wasn't when I was playing the All Blacks. So, you know, it was when yeah. you were doing... Yeah. When I was doing, when I was doing <laughs> Swan Lake. Um, so, yeah, I sort of cracked the big bone, big uh, sort of toe right. mask, you know. The, uh, I don't know what it's called, the joint in my big toe. And 
so it, it sort of over the years it's called calcified and so on. but with Jody's help it's fine now you Thank look you, Jody. quite a well uh, preserved what are you 35 you look quite well preserved 35 I oh, look I'm just next week publishing my new book which is called uh, sexy, sophisticated, and sixty. That's my title. No, no, I think no, I, no, no. no you got the well, forty I did and the decades fi- ones. No, you got the forty and fifty sort of, but, but I, I don't think you've copyrighted the sixty yet. <laughs> well, I'm going to it after no, the show. No, but I've got there first. <laughs> so, so uh, two questions for you. One: Is it true that you use a one of those standing desk things? Yeah, the ABC. Yeah, and, and good. Yeah. Do you re- you re- yeah, recommend I it? think that's quite good. Yeah, so you can put them down if you if you okay, want, but cool. I think. Uh, I, I feel better for it, and I think people, you know, I, I, I think the guests respond to it. You right. feel more, slightly more that you're on a stage. And, sure, cool. And you're you're here on the radio for 10 minutes, for 15 minutes. Come, speak, deliver. Yeah. Get on with it. I like mm. it. And the, the second one is, I think we share a love of the English journalist Matthew Paris. Yes. Wow. Matt. Yeah. Wow. Now, in... Th- he's the greatest writer. Oh, he's just sensational. In, in 2006... He wrote about him not washing his hair and I therefore stopped washing my hair. Mm. And then someone told me that you did the same. And I want yeah. to chronologically date it because your hair looks all right. Like no, mine I looks all right. It. But I think, look, this is the weirdest friendship. We are quite good friends. You, you know him? Yeah, I, I, we're quite good friends. Ah, wow. Um, I'm and, jealous. And, um, and, but I know him. Because of this. So he writes this column in the Times about not watching And, and the hair. Spectator is where I am. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, um, and I think, gee, that's a great radio stunt because I could do this in Sydney. I could not wash my own hair and then I could recruit listeners because Paris puts this theory that if you don't wash it for six weeks, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. But if you maintain... If you stick with it, you break it, through. That's right. So I it's remember. a great Protestant work ethic yeah. or whatever thing. You finally break through and you enter this sunny uplands where you never have to wash yeah. your hair again. That's the theory. So I thought, what a great radio son. I can recruit people. And th- so I, I do this. Well, what year is this? Oh, it's a long time ago now. Yeah. I, I can't remember. Uh-oh. A decade ago or right. something. Yeah, yeah, cool. um, and um, 12, maybe 12 years ago. I can't remember. Um, and uh, I get 600 people in Sydney. Wow. And they're all taking, they're all doing, we're doing it quite formally. And we've all got diaries and we're filling it in. And, um, and of course, then I get, uh, you know, I, agree, um, I admit it's Matthew's idea, of course. So we get Matthew on all the time during right. this process on the phone from England to, to be our guru, I suppose. Right. And um, and anyway, we, we do this, and and about eighty percent of the people end up saying their hair is better, yeah. you know, the same That's or what better, to me. Yep. D- despite not using. And a lot of people are still doing it. I meet people all the time who are saying, "I'm still doing it, mate. Think of all the money I've yeah. saved in the." But the, Matthew then comes out to Australia, so we have him on the radio again, and um, and I tell him about the Mud House book. So this is a slightly weird, long story, but sure. I tell him about the Mud House book because by then I'll publish this book about the Mud House. And it's really based on a book that Matthew wrote. And he wrote this great book about this house in Spain that he and his sister had, a, a sort of 14th century house that he and his sister had rebuilt. And I was inspired by this book because I thought my story with the house is the same, using the fabric of the building as an expression of a relationship. So I wrote my book. And I said to Matthew, you know, not only have you inspired this hair thing, but you've inspired this book, which was, you know, just just published a year ago and, you know, all of that. And um, and I said, that the, you know, one thing I should tell you actually is, is, is it, you know, it, 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 it sold very poorly. And Matthew said, really? So did mine. <laughs> I thought, mate, you could have told me. Oh, I love it. Now, listen, there's one last, um, this should be the six of my life, not the five of my life. Mm-hmm. There's one last question. It is, um, who would you like to hear on five of my life 
next. So we just had Kevin Rudd and John Eels mm-hmm. uh, and your dear self, uh, and you're driving in your car to Mittagong to your mud house. Who would you want to listen to on Five My Life? I think everyone has suddenly realised really quite recently was that when we talk about the great prime ministers of the recent period, we, we talk about Hawke, Keating and Howard, I think, a lot, you know, I know there's a variety of tensions about all that, but I think a lot of people agree they were all three pretty good prime ministers. I think people are realising that Gillard was actually quite a good prime minister. Do you minister. know what? How? And that's a recent yes. realisation. Recent realisation. Richard Glover, you have been just sensationally interesting to listen to, and I really appreciate you coming on my five of my life, and I'm going to give Julia a ring this afternoon. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Five of My Life on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>